Welcome to Religious Studies News. I'm your host, Christian Peterson, and today I'm here with Anna Sun. She's an associate professor of sociology at Kenyon College and winner of the Best First Book in the History of Religions Award. She's here to speak to us about her book, Confucianism as World Religion, Contested Histories and Contemporary Realities, which was published with Princeton University Press. Congratulations, and thanks for joining me, Anna. How are you? Very well. Thank you, Christian, for inviting me. It's great to be on your program. Uh, the book really is wonderful, and it, it could have been multiple books. Really, you cover so much in this this book, and I hope uh, listeners will will pick it up and check it out for themselves. So, to begin with, you lay out a history of the project of classifying world religions and where Confucianism fits in this history. So, I was wondering if within this context you could you could tell us how did Confucianism become a world religion? Um, that is a question that um, has been asked by many, many scholars and I have learned from many of them. Um, this is a historical question. Uh, this religious study, the religious sta- status of Confucianism um, has been controversial for centuries. Um, however, for us today, for scholars today, there's always Confucianism being mentioned in a context of world religions. Scholars of Confucianism um, um, teach in religious studies departments. So when did Confucianism become one of the accepted world religions? Um, I had this question when I was in graduate school, um, being um, a student originally born and raised in China. I came to the States um, for college and then graduate school. And then I was always puzzled by this question. People would say, well, tell us about Confucianism, um, one of the uh, great Chinese religions. So that's a real question to me, not only a, a scholarly question, but also a real personal one. Is Confucianism religion? Why do people in the West keep s- speaking of it as one of the major world religions? So that question led me to archival work. So I remember um, 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 going into the library, reading books from the um, 20s and the 19th century, trying to find an answer to this question. And one night, very late in the Firestone Library in, at Princeton, um, I came across shelves upon shelves of books on comparative religion, published roughly between 1860, 1870, all the way to the 1920s and 30s. And many of those volumes would include Confucianism as a world religion. So bear in mind, these are scholarly books as well as popular books on comparative religion, uh, which were very, very popular in the 10th of the 20th century. So I thought, this is very interesting. Something was happening in that period. So that's how I started my archival work, which took me from the Firestone Library all the way to the Bodleian at Oxford. The reason for the Bodleian um, 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 step of research is that um, Frederick Max Muller, the founder of comparative religion or the so-called science of religion, um, taught at Oxford until 1900, until his death. And he um, was the one who um, formally included Confucianism as one of the world religions when he spoke of the eight great religions of the world. And this 
conception, this classification of Confucianism as a world religion was solidified when um, uh, Confucian texts were included in the seminal publication, the 50-volume Sacred Books of the East. This debate over whether Confucianism was a religion or not didn't only happen in this kind of you know, pre-modern era. This has been a conversation that's been ongoing almost up until the present. So uh, how, how did this project of definition c- continue through the years? Well, I think the definition, or, the, or what I would call the controversy over the religious nature of Confucianism, has been taking place on several different levels um, since uh, the turn of the 20th century. I think um, on one level, there are scholars, intellectuals, who debate with one another about the religious nature of Confucianism. And in the Chinese context, um, this, it, it has, in fact, um, a very important uh, political uh, component. Um, it is a controversy also on the level of the state. Um, the modern state use different strategies to control religious populations. And one of them is through classification of religions. Um, And of course, through collecting data on different religious groups. So modern social scientists in China, as well as in the West, have been having a tremendous amount of difficulty understanding who the religious people are in China and specifically who the Confucians are in China. So that's a level of, say, statecraft. And on the third level, uh, people in China today also have to wrestle with the um, consequences of the classification of Confucianism as a world religion. So that's how I started my own research. I was genuinely puzzled by the question. And people in China today are still, are still struggling and negotiating with one another, with the state and with scholars to figure out the religious status of Confucianism. So it's an ongoing controversy, it's an ongoing process. Mm. Now, despite the ubiquitous presence in world religions textbooks uh, and classrooms, as you mentioned, few Chinese people consider Confucianism a religion And China does recognize several religions officially, but Confucianism is not one of them. So can you tell us a little bit about, as researchers, how have people historically approached religion in China, and why is there this disconnect? Yeah, that's a great question. So, as you know, the Chinese state um, has this idea of five major religions in China, Uh, It is uh, uh, a political category. It has very real social and political consequences. There is a state bureau of religious administration, SARA, uh, that have offices in charge of this uh, five major religions. And the five major religions are Protestantism, Catholicism, Islam, Buddhism, and Taoism. Um, And as you know, Confucianism is not part of it. So when social scientists try to study religion in China, both Chinese scholars and scholars from outside of China, they run into the problem of people not, in fact, um, uh, um, um, 
identifying themselves as members of a certain religion. Um, so even though we have this so-called five major religions in China, it's actually very hard even to figure out who the Buddhists are and who the Taoists are um, because of the way these categories are defined. Um, my own uh, sense is that it is really only possible to get a concrete sense of who, um, uh, who belong to which religion when you speak of monotheism with clear conversion um, rights. So it is um, possible to, to find out who the Muslims are and who the Christians are in China. I think it is not difficult for people to self-identify. But it is awfully hard for Taoists to identify themselves as Taoists and, and Buddhists identify themselves as Buddhists. Um, in fact, if you look at the official number of Taoists in China, the number is terribly small because the number includes mostly essentially only Taoist, uh, Taoist um, uh, um, uh, priests or uh, uh, clergy. So, um, so uh, very few people would say there are Confucians. Uh, let me, if you don't mind, I, I would like to give you some statistics. This is actually fascinating. So if you look at um, the World Values, Value Survey, which is um, a major um, comparative survey uh, conducted in um, in um, dozens of countries around the world. Um, in the 2001 World Value Survey, 93.9% of people say that they are not part of a religious denomination. 89.7% of people say they have never attended religious service. And only 13 0.7% of people say they consider themselves a religious person. So based on those numbers, you, you, you will, one would draw the conclusion that China is a country of, of, um, of, um, of uh, is one of the least religious countries in the world, especially if you look at um, um, affiliation with a specific religion. 90.9% of the people say they're not part of a religion. However, um, the problem is with the way religion is defined um, in the Chinese context. The way we define religion in surveys in the States does not work in, um, in studies of uh, religions in China. Um, I argue, um, um, in fact, not in this book, but in my new project, that we really need to move beyond this monotheistic framework in looking at Chinese religions. We should look at Chinese religions as a religious system, as an ecological religious system. It is not about having a single um, identity. It is about um, a complex system of practices and beliefs. But come back to the issue of Confucianism. So, in a survey um, I, have, um, I have been part of, um, which is the, um, the Horizon Survey of Spiritual Life um, um, of Chinese People, conducted in 2007, amongst 7,000 people surveyed, only 12 considered themselves Confucians. <laughs> Um, which is an astonishingly small number. However, if you look at practice, 
67.6 percent of people visited their ancestors' graves to do、um, ancestral veneration in the past year. In other words, even though、um, Confucianism is not one of the major five religions in China,、um, even though if you ask in surveys.、Um, Whether someone is a Confucian, you will get a very small number of people who say they are Confucians. If you look at actual practices, especially ritual practice, one could argue that there is a large number of Chinese people who are still very much、uh, living their lives according to the Confucian ritual tradition. That's a great segue because the the final third of your book you really focus on this idea of how Confucianism is practiced today, and one of your、uh, key points is the role of ritual activity. So, for listeners who perhaps are not familiar with this at all,、um, what what does a Confucian ritual look like? Why why is ritual so important? How how can we understand this?、Um, so, in my book, I came up with this typology. Of what I call three criteria of Confucian practice. So, the minimalist criterion is what I call Confucius worship. This is what happens、um, mostly、um, in the context of Confucius temples. So, when people go to Confucius temples to perform rituals. I'm asking for blessings, offering prayers. I term that Confucius worship.、Um, I have studied Confucius worship in a dozen Confucius temples in mainland China, and I have seen different kinds of ritual、uh, activities in almost all of them. The second criterion is what I call inclusive criterion, which refers to. Ancestral rituals. So this is mostly about、um, veneration of ancestral spirits on their graves. This could this also includes, of course, rituals performed in ancestral shrines. And my argument is that,、uh, in fact, there's a very large number of Chinese people who are involved in ancestral rituals. Um, based on the survey、um, we've conducted, it's around seventy percent at least. I also have something called the last criterion is what I called the extended criterion,、um, namely、uh, what I refer to as cultural Confucianism. So this refers to people who practice Confucian social rituals. They may or may not perform. Confucius、uh, worship, they may or may not perform ancestral rituals, but in their lives,、um, especially everyday life, they perform different kinds of、uh, Confucian social rituals, um, um, from um, filial piety、um, to following,、um, say, a Confucian wedding ceremony,、um, or following other. Kinds of ceremonies marking different stages in life, such as um, um, coming of age ceremony, and so on and so forth. You you mentioned 
near the end of the book that we have multiple futures that we could have in relation to Confucianism, not only in China but within the globe. We see China creating things like Confucian Institutes throughout the world. Where do you where do you see the future of Confucianism in China and then in the world? What are some of the the paths it may take in the future? Um, I think um, I think the different paths may really have to do with these different ways Confucianism um, affects people's lives. So on the ritual level, um, I have been seeing. Um, and a revival of rituals taking place in Confucius temples. So they include burning incense, it, they include praying to the tablet, the statue, or the portrait of Confucius in temples, and they also include writing prayers on prayer cards that hang in the, on the trees um, or special shelves within Confucius temples. So this revival of rituals related to Confucius worship. So that's on the level of, I would call that more um, um, religious rituals. I am also seeing a tremendous revival or re-emergence of ancestral rites throughout China. Um, in fact, the date of um, veneration of um, ancestral spirits on their graves, uh, which, is, which takes place in early, um, early spring, April the 5th, has now become a national holiday in China. I believe that was made into a national holiday in 2008 for the simple reason that everyone takes time off work to return to their ancestral hometowns to do the veneration. So the state has to accommodate it and, and simply make it into a national holiday so everyone can take time off. So that is, I think that revival and reemergence of, of, of ancestral rights uh, is going to have se- uh, important consequences. In my next pro, I have two new projects I'm working on. One of them is called Habits of the Heart in China. This is a collaborative project with three other colleagues. And my own interest is um, 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 how Confucian um, rituals um, Religious as well as social rituals have been playing an important role in maintaining the habits of the heart in contemporary China today. The last revival and reemergence is what I call cultural Confucianism. And one may argue that the rise of Confucius Institutes is part of this effort of spread cultural Confucianism. Um, I think, um, of course, Confucius Institutes are sponsored and funded by the Chinese state, so there's a political dimension as well. Um, and sometimes, sometimes it is hard to um, to parse which part is cultural, which part is political. Now, there's a whole lot of the book that we obviously were not able to to get to, uh, so I would encourage people to to read it. But perhaps could. Convince them why they should, especially people who perhaps don't work in China. Um, so how do, how do you imagine that others in the study of religion could benefit from your work, either in applying some of your conclusions or thinking about your methods? Um, I think there are two things for me that are essential to this book project. The first is is a sense that we need to take the process of knowledge production seriously. 
We, I am a sociologist by training. I do archival work. Um, I, I've conducted survey research. I also do ethnography. And I think all three methods are really essential to, um, to um, um, a broad understanding and study of religious life. The idea of taking the process of knowledge production seriously came to me when I started, when I was deep, really deep into the archival work in the Bodleian. I realized that what people were doing in Oxford, England, in the 19th century, actually has real consequences on how Confucianism is understood, studied, and practiced today. This is what the philosopher of science, Ian Hacking, calls the looping effect of categories. He makes this argument that um, human categories dealing with historical kinds, dealing with human beings, are fundamentally different from categories dealing with natural objects. So, for instance, uh, no matter how we um, categorize um, 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 stones, the, the stones we study will not change. But how we categorize people will actually have an impact on how these people are understood, how these people are treated by the state, by scholars, and then by other people, and also by themselves. So categories can have this looping effect, sometimes transformative effect. Um, the idea of world religions started in Europe in the late 19th century and became widely accepted throughout the world in the 20th century. In the 1950s, uh, Mao Zedong um, um, actually personally asked the Chinese Acad uh, Acad Academy of Social Sciences to establish an institute of world religions because China is now a major um, nation state in the world and we need to understand the world religions and also use these categories to understand our own society. So that's uh, really the first important lesson I've learned in this project, which is to take the process of knowledge production seriously since um, it has uh, real-world consequences. The next thing I've learned comes from my archival work in Confucius, uh, sorry, coming from my ethnographic work in Confucius temples. What I've learned is that there's no right or wrong practice in lived religious life. I have taken students to Chinese religious sites, and I remember once um, um, students with a tremendous amount of historical knowledge of Buddhism going to this temple in Hong Kong and coming out and saying, everything in this temple is wrong. Um, um, there are problems with the objects, there are problems with with um, with the uh, um, with the way um, Buddhist scriptures are understood, etc. But the point, I think, for a scholar who studies lived religion is to say, in fact, um, whatever happens in real life, we have to take it seriously. Our role is not here to say this is wrong, this is incorrect, but to do justice to how people live their lives. Um, through rituals, through religious traditions. So in the case of Confucius rituals, many rituals, such as uh, prayer cards, are reinvented. Uh, in fact, in my own uh, research, I've learned that 
the prayer cards in Confucius temples in China started in 2002 as a conscious effort um, 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 of, of a one temple manager. But does that make this new ritual illegitimate? I would argue no. I would argue that religious is a lived experience. It is like a river flowing through time, and it is going to change. It is going to expand. It is going to take on new elements. And our role as scholars is to follow it, try to understand it, and try to do justice to its richness. Well, Anna, your book uh, certainly helps us think about those things and uh, a lot more. So congratulations on the award and congratulations on the, the great book. And thank you for making time to chat. Thank you very much for having me, Christian. <laughs>